We are in Luke chapter 7, saints. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50 is our passage for today. Luke 7, 36 to 50. Luke 7, 36 through 50 is our text. And so, um, just to remind you that this is the word of the Lord. Amen. And, and uh, I hope that it uh, encourages us. I think it's a very encouraging text today for you. Luke 7, 36 through 50 is our text. Starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who has forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Father, may you be glorified. Be with us today. Keep us alert. Keep us obedient. May your word bring truth and life to the point of walking this out this week. For your word is for correction, for training and righteousness. May we be alert, Lord God. May you help us. Be with us today, we ask in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. So faith is only as good as its object. Faith is only as good as its object. Faith has become a tool that people speak of. If you just had enough of it, things will happen in your favor. So people think faith is a tool. This is not what faith is for. Faith is not for results. Faith prioritizes the believer's life to what is most important. Not that you will get your way. 
Faith means that you have been persuaded, assured, and convinced. However, it begs the question, what object are you placing your faith in? Faith is only as good as its object. You cannot speak of faith without asking faith in what? Where do you place your trust? Whom do you trust? This passage today shows us someone who is lost, who has no trust. There is a Pharisee and a woman from the city who is a known sinner. The city woman, known as a sinner, was shown something about Jesus that moved her to the point of no concern for anything else but what Christ deserved. Man, we need to be there again. Where nothing matters but Jesus. I don't care what people think. I don't care what people say about how I dress. I'm focused on him. I ain't got, you know, for those of y'all who like gossip, repent. All up in people's business, worried about other things. Not being preoccupied with the glories and excellencies of Christ. Focusing on him. I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes I worry too much about what people think about me. Better question is, what does God think about me? The Pharisee in our text, saints, who invited Jesus to dinner could not see what she saw. Seeing is believing. Amen? Oh, hold up, Lois. What are you talking about? Seeing is believing. This woman saw something. And what she saw compelled her to do what she did. Now, I know, you know, some people say, well, I never saw God, you know, with my eyes and all that. That's not seeing, y'all. Seeing is having faith, trust, seeing Christ for who he is. Seeing is believing. This is what makes the difference in our passage between someone who knows the law and tradition, the Pharisee, and someone who knows Christ, who is a known sinner. Faith is only as good before God, if placed in him, which this woman who was a known sinner did, and it changed everything for her. She placed her faith where it mattered most. She placed her faith in a sinless Savior. And that's the title for our message today, Knowing the Infinite Worth of the Sinless Savior. In our outline for today, uh, point number one, the sinful woman, the sinful woman, point number one, verses 36 to 38. Second point, the sinful man, verses 39 to 43, the sinful man. And then third, and definitely not least, the sinless Savior, 36 to 38. Amen. I mean, uh, verses 44 to 50. So starting in point number one, the sinful woman, verse 36 one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. You know, we have to ask, who is a Pharisee? Well, Pharisee, the Pharisees actually were a religious party that required its members to have a strict view of ritual laws and traditions, the traditions that their elders held. Now, throughout the Gospels, we see them constantly testing Jesus and wanting to arrest him because of his teaching and ministry. You see that. If you're familiar and acquainted with the Gospels, who are the ones that always got beef with the Lord? The Pharisees, the experts of the law, those who are preoccupied with traditions. 
And so their problems with Christ extend even to the book of Acts towards the apostles, including Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. One of them asked Jesus to eat with him. It's interesting. The Pharisees constantly criticized Jesus for eating with others. If I had a problem with somebody, the last thing I would do is invite them over to the crib to eat a little something, if you know what I mean. That ain't happening. But both in Matthew 9 and Mark, the Pharisees questioned Jesus about eating with tax collectors and sinners. If you remember in Luke 5.30, the Pharisee grumbled at the disciples and asked about Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. After our text, you do see them asking the same question in Luke 15.2. This particular passage only speaks of one Pharisee present here, but then later on we'll see that there were others there as well. There are similar accounts in Matthew 26 and Mark 14. However, those accounts of the other woman that gave an alabaster flask is a separate account. So it's not the same here in our text as it is in Matthew and Mark. However, these separate events took place. The Pharisee came from a camp that constantly attacked and criticized Jesus. Yet that Pharisee invited Jesus to his house to eat. So he went into the Pharisee's house and it says he reclined at table. Only one time does the word recline appear without referencing a table. I looked it up, and it means to lie down by the table. So it's not like today where you pull out a chair and we all kind of sit on the chair and we eat. Back then, they used to kind of like lean back, if you know what I mean. Y'all don't even know what that is. Yeah, y'all know what that is, a lean back thing. Fat Joe, you know. You know but... Um, Reclining meant like laying back, and it was a little bit more comfortable back then. They would actually rest on pillows. You know, they would like kind of sit, and the table was low. So he reclined that table there. He laid on the cushion. It could also have meant that Jesus was lying in a position on his side, ready to eat by the table, which seems to be customary back then in the first century. Let's read verse 37 and see what happens as he does that. Verse 37, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Before pointing out two specific things about the woman, Luke tells his readers to behold, and I tell you that today. He's telling them to look, pay attention, see what I am about to share here because it's significant. And I will say the same thing to you. Behold, pay attention. Look very closely at what is being said here. Why is Luke asking the reader to behold here? Remember that this was at the Pharisee's house. Pharisees, Gentiles, tax collectors, and known sinners like prostitutes did not find themselves together. Remember when uh, Matthew prepared something for, for Jesus? It said there were tax collectors there and prostitutes. And then the Pharisees were like, yo, who is this dude that's doing this? These people are unclean. He don't belong with people like that. And here we find a woman who was a known sinner entering the house of a Pharisee. Something significant was about to happen here. And Luke wanted Theophilus, who he wrote this letter to, to notice and pay close attention to what is happening. So Luke tells us two things about this woman. Number one. She was a woman of the city, a woman of the city. We have any women in, uh, from the city here in the house, right? You're in the city. 
The city here is possibly Nain, which is called a town, but the Greek also could include a city. It says it's a town, city, they're synonymous terms. Therefore, the Greek word used to describe this town here was a city. A city or town being mentioned tells us that she was from where many people lived, very close to each other, most likely a populated area. So she's a woman from the city, from where there was a lot of people that, you know, where they lived together. When you think of city, you think of very condensed, very populated area, right? Marketplaces, stores, that's where she's from. Number two, Luke says she was a sinner. Luke tells us that she was a sinner. She was not virtuous, not according to the Pharisees, but according to Luke. Luke is telling you that she's not a virtuous woman. It's not the Pharisees saying, yo, she's unclean just because she's not one of us. The author's telling you she's a sinner. Luke is giving us correct information about her. She's irreligious. She doesn't fit the description of someone who behaves godly. She's sinful. And then it says, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. The woman learned that Jesus was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house and she decided to go there. At that time, it was usual for people to spectate at dinner, especially when a known guest had been invited. I'm kind of familiar with this too because of in Puerto Rico where we used to live, we didn't have doors or windows. And so when we would eat together, it was common for people to peek in the window and just be about, be all up in your business. Now you don't do that here in America, right? We got windows, right? But over here, the, the windows were wide open and people can actually hang over on the window and look in the house to, to know what's going on. And it says, you know, that's usually customary of what took place there. For a Pharisee, and because of how strict they held to the law, it would have been unthinkable for someone to come uninvited, though, especially someone who was a known sinner. The woman who was a sinner brought an alabaster flask of ointment to Christ. She was uninvited in doing so. She wasn't asked to go there. She was desperate to go there. Women in the ancient world had bottles of perfume tied around their necks for special occasions, but this is not the case here. An alabaster flask or vase for holding perfume and ointment is often made of alabaster, which was a mineral rock that was soft and smooth. Usually the flask and vase would have a long neck that would be broken off when used. As an example, Mark 14, 3. The woman there had the alabaster flask break and poured it over the head of Jesus. The text does not say this, but she, some people say she might have been a prostitute. And that created the rep of her being a sinner. But one thing that they use alabaster flask for, the ointment for, is for them to smell good, right? And usually the prostitute would do that to smell good to the customer. She brings this flask or vase with an aromatic juice that came from trees and will be a pleasing aroma. And then in verse 38, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair, with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So one of the questions I had was weeping for what? What's she crying for? What's the big deal? Hold on to that question because Jesus answers that later in our text. 
But we see this woman doing four things to Christ as she was weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. This shows us her posture. She lowered herself enough to cry at his feet, wetting his feet with her tears. She lowered herself, taking the place of submission to him. Number two, she wiped his feet with her hair, with the hair on her head. Now, women back then used their hair to communicate uh, sexual advances. Here she is, not communicating that, but laying it down to his feet and saying, I surrender to you. The very thing that she might have been using to entice people. We don't know why she was called a sinner, but the fact that she was called a sinner may mean that she did not steward her looks for the good. She thought Jesus was worthy enough to wipe his feet with what she had on her head, her hair. Her value and her looks were gone. I know some of y'all take a lot of time with your hair. Amen. Not, okay, maybe, I, I know I don't. Some of y'all do. You go to the salon, you go to EV shop, you, take, you get it done, right? That's gone. She's not preoccupied with how she looks like anymore. That's gone. It doesn't matter. Something else matters more. She lowered herself to Christ that low. Ladies, there's a lesson here for anyone who puts too much on their appearance. Because the culture tries to make you feel like you should look a certain way, right? Should dress a certain way, look a certain way. Don't fall trapped to the, what the world should say you should look like. The last thing you should worry about is how you look like externally. God's more concerned with your heart. Get your heart right. And then if you want to look good, look good. That's fine too. But, but not for the world, for his glory. Be modest. Then we see she kissed his feet. This is unusual, isn't it? You're supposed to clean your feet, not kiss them. This is because the feet in those days were the dirtiest part of the body. People back then didn't wear socks. They wore sandals. And it was customary for a guest to come into the house to have his feet cleaned by the servant. So she was kissing the dirtiest part of his body. Whatever caused her to weep, whatever caused her to weep caused her not to think about anything about herself. Something drove her to love Christ so much that she would kiss his feet. And then lastly, she anointed his feet with ointment. In Matthew and Mark's account, they add that the woman at Bethany anointed the head and feet. Here, this woman anointed his feet, which means she was smearing his feet with good-smelling ointment. This very thing she used to make herself smell good as a sinner, she used on Christ. So what would be the response of the Pharisee who invited Jesus to eat with him? His response would expose the condition of his heart, which is our second point, the sinful man. The sinful man in verses 39 to 43. The Pharisee here invited Jesus, you know, who invited Jesus here commented to himself that if Jesus were a prophet from God, he would have known what sort of woman this was. He's saying that no one who is righteous should be touched by someone who is a known sinner. However, 
Here is one of the most shocking truths of this passage. The woman who was a sinner in our text was touching God. She was touching God, a sinner. How is this possible? Where's the reaction from Isaiah 6? Woe to me, man. I got unclean lips. I'm in trouble. She wasn't there. She saw something. And she touched God in the flesh. What sort of woman is this? She was considered an outsider because she failed to conform to the law of God. As a matter of fact, in Acts 10, 28, there was a rule that Jews held by. Not just Jewish people, but actually people of stature. Where it says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. <coughs> so Peter got to this later, but this is where Jesus was now. <clears throat> Don't call what God made unclean. A known sinner, outsider, considered unclean, immoral, <clears throat> and doesn't measure up, can touch the God-man, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit is showing us something here, saints, that your unworthiness isn't enough for you to stay away from the Lord. It's not. That's where you need to be. Sin and this world, the things that we go through, make us feel like, nah, I ain't worthy to go before God and even touch the helm of his garment or touch his feet or do anything with the Lord. She was a known sinner. She was, she was immoral and ungodly, but yet the Lord continued to allow her to touch him. The woman brought what she used to make herself smell clean to Jesus, who was clean himself. She is a sinner. She is immoral. She is unclean, unfit to meet the standard of God. Yet she was compelled to go to Christ. This is a great example. Say, never think of yourself as too unclean to touch God. So go to God in prayer. Instead, go to God for what you need and God will give you what you need. The very things you have used to make yourself look good and smell good to others, give it up. It's not worth it. Stop trying to look good and start being more concerned with being godly. Stop trying to be so formal about your Christian faith and just live it out. It's not going to look like you think it should. If you're real about your Christian faith, man, it's going to be an uncomfortable uh, narrow path. It's going to be that. God doesn't need anything from you, by the way. He doesn't need oil. He doesn't need to smell good. But he wants you to come. The alabaster flask indicated what was going on in the woman's heart. She was a sinner and came to offer Christ what she had. However, I know of the concern that many of us have. What about what other people think? The other people here in our text as examples. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was who was touching him. Simon, the Pharisee, is now questioning whether Jesus is actually from God. 
If this man were a prophet, he would have known. Is Simon saying that Jesus is now a false prophet? Notice that his questioning came from not a false prophecy, but from the fact that a woman who was a known sinner touched him. The Pharisee seems to show that he does not have two things. Number one, the love of God. The love of God. When we get to the point where we feel like we're untouchable or unreachable by people who we think are beneath us, we should question first whether we have the love of God or not. If the sovereign God of the universe came as a man and allowed unclean people, a leper, people that were sick, to touch him, and we keep people at a distance who aren't on our level, that's not the love of God, y'all. Number two, he didn't have genuine faith in Christ, who was God himself. He didn't see what the woman saw. I wonder if he would have known who Jesus was, if he would have said, he is God, he knows what he is doing. Does he know what he's doing? I thought you were God, you're untouchable. No, he's very reachable. The Pharisee is showing his condition and his conditioning. His conditioning. His condition was that he did not fully trust and believe Jesus to be God. Furthermore, his conditioning, because he was a Pharisee, was to know the law and the elders' traditions, yet he did not have heartfelt love for God. Moreover, this is where Jesus goes. He goes right into the core of the problem, to the Pharisee's dilemma with a parable. Starting in verse 40, read with me. Now Jesus is going to respond with the Pharisee saying, this woman shouldn't be touching this guy. Verse 40, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Notice he calls him a teacher. So he's rocking a little bit with his title. Like, okay, you're teaching well, but you're a little weird right now because you're letting this unclean woman touch you. <laughs> Verse 41, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which, which of them will love him more? Verse 33, Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Right? So what lesson is Jesus teaching Simon the Pharisee? Well, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, which is equivalent to $25,000. And the other 50, which is about $2,500. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Which of them will love him more? Did Simon know about the debt he owed? That's what Jesus is getting to. Homie, you got a debt you can't pay. Do you know? Maybe that's your problem. You don't know of the debt you owe, and you don't know that I can pay that debt for you. I don't think he knew, because he wouldn't have responded the way he did. This sinful woman's response to Jesus shows that Jesus was worthy of all that she was giving. But Simon questioned it. Who is the sinner in our passage? Who's lost? Maybe the Pharisee who invited Jesus was the one who did not know of the debt he owed. 
Furthermore, that is the dilemma of the sinner. Sinners do not know they have an infinite debt that is owed to God. They don't know. Sinners without salvation cannot fathom why Christ is priceless and worthy of everything we have. They wonder why we are here today. People are wondering, why are you singing songs every week? Why do you even put money in the offering plate? What's Pastor Lowe's doing with that money? Straight up. A lot of questions. Why? 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 Well, if you knew who Jesus was, me giving $10 or whatever is nothing. Me giving my time is nothing. He deserves everything. My eyes have been opened. I've seen the Savior. I've been drawn. I'm in love, y'all. I lift my hands because I love him and he loves me. I come here every week to be reminded of who he is because I live in a world who constantly tells me who I am and who he isn't. Who is loving God in our text today? Is it the Pharisee who knows and studies the law accurately, who has the right theology? Or is it the woman who is a known sinner? I believe the lost sinner in our text is not the woman. It is the Pharisee. The one who looked like he had it all together and right was lost. The one who looked like they were lost had it right. Y'all need to be careful with people who struggle. When they're fighting through their sin, fighting through their loss, fighting through their mess, and they look messy. You can have the Lord and be messy. Listen, Jesus goes into this by showing how this woman did what was right and how indicative it is of genuine faith. However, she came to hear about Jesus. It compelled her to see her debt and the worth of Jesus who was without sin. More important than getting yourself right is to see Jesus right so that you can walk right. Let me say that again. More important than getting yourself right is to see Jesus right so that you can make yourself right. Seeing him right in light of who he is. That's where obedience comes from. From the beauty of his worth. This saves you from the Pharisees trap where rules and traditions, if they are kept, make you right before God. Which is far from the truth. However, the sinful person in our text who was lost was the Pharisee, I believe, not the sinful woman. It says she was a sinner, but I don't believe that she was completely lost. She went to the right place, to the right person. She was sinful, but somehow through the leading of the father, she was brought to the son. And his worth, which matters most in repentance, was seen. It is not the gravity of your sin that saves you, by the way. Because he's talking about a debt and how they saw their debt being forgiven. It is not the gravity of your sin that saves you. It is the immeasurable, infinite worth of Christ revealed to you that compels you to do what is right, like it did with this woman. She saw something. She saw the worth of a sinless Savior. Our last point, the sinless Savior in verses 44 to 50 in closing. Verse 44 of our text. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, 
do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Jesus tells Simon the Pharisee that he does not know the worth of the one before him. And that might be our very problem today. I want to ask you today, do you see this woman? Do you see what she sees? Do you know what she knows? Do you know of the infinite worth of the sinless Savior? John Chrysostom says, sorrow is given us on purpose to cure us of sin. Godly sorrow produces repentance. But that can't happen without seeing the infinite worth of the sinless Savior. How can there be sorrow for that which we love? That is evil without seeing the beauty and worth of Christ. Your struggle with your sin is not an issue of how attractive it is. It's a lack of attraction for Christ. I'm not going to go over here because I'm over here with the sinless Savior. He's, he's, he's worth it. Why am I going to trade infinite beauty and worth for temporary, for trash, for something that will waste and show itself unfruitful? How can there be sorrow for that which we love that is evil without seeing the beauty and worth of Jesus? The question then after that would be, why was this woman weeping? In verse 47, it tells us, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. She loved much because her many sins were forgiven and it came from Faith in Jesus. She knew of his worth so much that she wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with their hair. She has not ceased kissing his feet. She poured all she had on Christ. She could see that her sins, in light of whom Jesus was, opened her eyes to her sins. Moreover, saints, she did what a sinner should do when seeing who he is and their sins. She gave him all that she had. She didn't invite Jesus to hang out. Okay, Lord, yeah, we're cool. Come over the house. Come to my life. My busy schedule. I'll fit you in. She dropped it all. And that's our problem. God is worth more than anything you have, including your own life. Jesus is unpacking the problem, not with the sinful woman, but with the Pharisee here. The woman loved much, but the Pharisee loved little. So he, I would guess, did not love Jesus at all. Loving Jesus little is loving him not at all. You can't love some of Christ Oh, 50% Christ, 50%, you know, wifey. No. Uh-uh. He wants your priority. He wants your heart. He wants your mind. He wants your soul. He wants your strength. He wants everything. He demands it. He created it. It's his. 
Your body, your soul, your mind. He framed it. He has a right to tell you that's mine. Give that to me. And it's pride to say to the creator, no, this is mine. He wants it all. The parable was not about the amount of debt that was forgiven, but what the loved one is supposed to do because they are forgiven. Both persons in the parable had a debt that was forgiven. However, not seeing that Christ came to set us free from that debt will have one lost in their debts. The woman's action reveals that she knows both her many sins, and not only that, God is not just out to point the wrongs you do. Because you won't get repentance out of that. You'll get sorrow. So when you come to church and you feel like, man, all I feel is my sin. I feel like I'm whack. I feel like whatever. You're missing the point. Yes, you're whack. You are. You're sinful. You're righteous. You deserve hell. You deserve total separation from God. You're a dunghill. You're worth nothing. There's nothing in you that would attract God to save you. I'm sorry, you're not all that. You're not. Now, he could leave you there, but he didn't. So with the infinite amount of debt you owed and with your crisis of being nothing, he installs his Holy Spirit in you. Makes you priceless. Makes you a child of God. Makes you expensive. Where now you're royalty. You're called a friend of God, a brother of Christ, a sister of Christ. And will you be seated with him in the heavenlies? He came to set us free of the debt and also to reintroduce to us the image of God. That we are made in his image. We have intrinsic worth with God. He doesn't leave you at trash. He takes you to the throne. This woman's actions here reveals that she knows both her many sins and the worth of Christ, which is greater than her sins. Jesus loves you too much to leave you in your sins, in your unpayable debts. He loves us too much to leave us at a loss. When you come to him, he's able to save you. He's able to change you. He's able to remove your past. He's able to give you eternal life. He's able to renew your mind. He's able to give you strength when feeling weak and tired. Anybody here been broke and just tired and done with life? He can give you strength in that. You know what? The most important thing that he can do and has done for us is forgive our debts. Jesus did not leave her with the reputation she had, a woman in a city who was a sinner. She would now be the woman of the city who had been forgiven much. He said to her in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. Jesus said this before the man who was paralyzed in Luke 5. If you remember that, the paralytic in Luke 5, he said, your sins are forgiven. I wonder if Simon the Pharisee was one of those in Luke 5, 17. Luke 5, 17 says, one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee, Judea, 
and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. I wonder if Luke, if Simon the Pharisee was there where he saw that. The paralyzed man was let down from the roof since there was hardly any space by some. And then Luke 5, 20 to 21, and when he saw their faith, the people that brought the blind man down to him, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And then verse 21, the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. This was God who's able to forgive, who wants to forgive. It's not like just God saying, yo, I'm just doing this because I know I'm already going to do it. God desires to forgive you, to remove your debt from you because he loves you. The same response in our text, in verse 49. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? This was God. They did not know what the woman knew, so they did not know the debt they owed. They did not have faith like the woman had. Which in verse 50, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now remember, faith by itself cannot save. Faith in Christ saves. Faith is not a tool. Faith is the result of God opening our eyes to who he is. Faith is trusting in him, which cannot come from ourselves. Faith meaning you're being persuaded by who Christ is. Your assurance comes from this. You're being convinced of who God is comes from this. Faith is only as good at his object as its object. The object of faith here is Christ. And when Christ is believed and given uh, you place your faith in Christ your sins it says will be forgiven Ephesians 2 8 for by grace you have been saved through faith this is not your own doing it is a gift of God you can't save yourself the woman didn't see this because her eyes were, you know, she just like came to this realization by herself and saw, yo, this is God. I better treat him as royalty. No, God saw her condition as a sinner and said, I'm going to open your eyes to see my son. And when she saw the son, she did exactly what we should be doing today. If we really knew the death and treasure of the gospel, what could stop us from praising and giving thanks? What could stop us from temptation, from resisting temptation? How we're drawn to our sins, right? And it is pulling on, on us. But if you know the infinite worth of the sinless Savior, you get pulled back real quick. This isn't worth it. This woman in our text was given the greatest gift, salvation through faith in Christ alone, saints. So who was the lost one in our passage? It was the guy who thought he had it together. The guy who had enough money to pull off this whole dinner. Probably thought himself as self-righteous. Then all of a sudden an inconvenience happens where a guest comes who's a known sinner. And says, yo, why is she here? And now she's touching this guy's feet. Is this guy a prophet? Is he from God? Lost. Lost in formality, lost in the law, lost with the law, let me say. 
lost with the false knowledge of God, no heart. Who had heart in our passage? It was the woman who was a sinner. God's not so concerned with how you do things, saints. He's more concerned with why we do them. Why do you do what you do? Why did this woman do what she did? She saw her debt, saw that it was paid, but more importantly, she saw that Jesus was worth her everything. So saints, I would invite you today. You want to fight your sin? You want to have victory in your life? Fighting your sin is not the primary objective. Loving Christ is. Loving Jesus, him loving you. I'd rather resist sin because of love rather than duty. God's not impressed with that. We often think, man, I never committed adultery in my marriage. I'm good. Or I never cheated on my taxes. I'm good. I never, 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 never. God's not concerned with the nevers and all that. Avoidance of sin is no sign of godliness and righteousness. Justification and sanctification are signs of righteousness. Where is the trajectory of your life going? Do you feel like you're growing? Because growing happens like this sometimes. You plateau, and then you grow, plateau. Some of y'all are hard-headed, so you like boom, 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 boom. Sometimes that happens too. But sanctification is an increase of maturity and faith. So let me say this, that even though this woman came to faith and she probably grew, I'm believing she grew out of her sin and became a godly woman, that place where she's at is the place where she should always be. That's where we need to be every single day. At his feet, giving him everything we have. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We ask that you be with us. God, I thank you for the women in Scripture that you used to teach us today. Thank you for the legacy, the things in Scripture that we see that cause us to live even today. Your word is a lamp unto our feet, a guide to our path. God, I pray for those who have not found themselves at your feet in repentance, giving you what is deserving of you. I pray that they will be there so that they go out into the world and know how to fight sin, know how to navigate through this world. I pray for those who have not come to saving faith. God, that you would deliver and transform and renew them. Bring them to saving faith. We ask that at the time of the table, Lord, that you will be glorified as we remind ourselves of the finished work of Christ. How you died, your body broken, your blood shed, that has brought a people who were not your people. We ask, Lord, that at the table we would remember what has brought us hope. We ask, Lord, you will be with us. We ask in Jesus' name.